0: This is Labor Wave Radio.
1: you can't calculate everything, you can't predict the outcome in advance. You have to sort of experiment and see what's possible for workers, right? And in the process, the movement has grown organically, exponentially, and workers' expectations have been raised.
2: The key point is that we now have a movement, which we did not have. We have not run a corner yet, but, you know, I don't think it's a defeat, as some people may like to call it. I think it's an you know, inconclusive ending for now. But the difference being that we have a movement that we do not have. And also, it's just like the way in which I think, you know, people have a real lived experience of doing a wildcat strike. And that wildcat strike as a tactic, right, as a repertoire of tactic, uh, so sort of become normalized and just become part of things we could do. I think that was completely unimaginable in November 2019.
0: Today on Labor Wave, we feature an interview with two striking workers at the University of California system, Shannon Akebe and Tara Phillips, who are also the authors of the piece The Grassroots Wildcat Strike for Acola and the Fight for a Democratic Militant Union, which is linked in our show notes. Shannon Akebe is a PhD candidate in Sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. She studies social democracy and labor movements in Europe. And Tara Phillips is a PhD candidate in Comparative Literature at the University of California, Berkeley, where she studies U.S. and Latin American literature of the 20th century from a food studies perspective. She's also an academic worker and -and rank-and-file labor organizer in UAW 2865. Our conversation gives us an update on the Wildcat Strike at the University of California system and largely engages in a rebuttal to criticisms of the Wildcat Strike and its strategy, we focus on worker self-activity, the need for deep democracy within labor unions, and how to organize insurgencies. Our guests also emphasized the need to dispel pseudoscientific claims to the physics of a strike, arguing that there are scenarios where you cannot perfectly measure and structure and plan the types of insurgencies that are necessary to gain working class power in the workplace and elsewhere, and they take more of their influence and inspiration from writers such as Rosa Luxemburg and her pieces on the mass strike. We at Labor Wave are also excited to announce that we've started a Patreon account. Our show has become labor and time intensive and has required additional resources to continue going. And I really love doing this show and we want it to continue. So in order for the, to be able to be sustained, we've started this Patreon account to sustain the longevity of the show. Any little contribution helps, of course, everything on Labor Wave is going to remain free and accessible to all. We're still going to commit to transcribing all of our episodes in order to expand access for everybody. However, if you do become a patron of our show, we'll give you a shout out on the show. We also have some cool gifts that people will receive, including custom made original stickers, illustrated zines that are transcriptions of our After the Revolution series. The first one illustrated is a copy of our dinner table After the Revolution episode with Raj Patel, and even some original screen printed t-shirts. So we're going to have those fun things for patrons. Also, we're going to be launching a really fun book chat series with Andrea Haverkamp and Sarah Pichianeri, two comrades and union organizers based in Oregon. We're going to be discussing the book No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age by Jane McAlevey. And in order to host this book series and make it interactive and engaging, we've started a Discord server, and people that become patrons to our show will be invited to that Discord and able to join us for reading sessions, discussion, and more behind-the-scenes stuff that'll help prepare us for recorded episodes where we discuss each chapter-by-chapter digging into the meat of No Shortcuts. Check that out. It's patreon.com backslash laborwave. Also, our website has all of our content, again, available for free at Laborwaveradio.com. You can also subscribe to our show, on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcast. With that, we hope you enjoy this episode with two wildcat striking workers in the UC system, Shannon Akebe and Tara Phillips. You both wrote a piece that was published online as a rebuttal to a criticism of the wildcat strikes happening in the UC system. Can you first provide just kind of a capsule version of what the original criticism was? Like, what are the arguments of the author what are they trying to say in those arguments? Before we kind of get into the reasons they're wrong, Shannon, if you want to take on that question first,
2: the original criticism, or rather, sort of attack on the um, on the cora movement, the cora vardkat strike uh, by Katas Rumrio, was that the cora vardkat strike uh, was ineffective and would never ever win. Demands, and uh, it was extremely uh, risky, and then it would uh, sort of only, you know, expose the striking workers to a very harsh repression without having any chance of winning. I think that's the main argument as far as we could discern. Uh, but Tara, do you want to add a bit more to the political context of this union? In which such an argument is em, has emerged, because I think you know it's the political context is sort of very important in, in understanding why sort of you know we as well as the movement uh, engaged and responded in this way.
1: Sure. I mean, actually, I think you're you're a better person to answer that question, but I can say I can say a bit more just about I think the framing of the argument and the kind of context material moment from which it it arose, because I think that's really important as well. So this piece came out right as we had just voted to go on strike on the Berkeley campus, right? So this was kind of like a critical moment. And the piece was written like, you know, very beautifully. It's very convincing. And I think for that reason, it started circulating really quickly on our campus. And on the UC Santa Cruz campus, I think just like statewide, everyone was reading it. And I think it was really, I mean, it, it, it really played into the fears of students who were about to go on strike. I mean, a bit, um, but more, more so with faculty and allies, right? Who already have this really kind of faculty, especially this, unfortunately, I mean, faculty are wonderful, of course, but they often have this kind of paternalistic attitude, right? Towards graduate students, which is really hard. To shake, and so I think it struck a lot of fear in their hearts for us, right? Because they've already been feeling like you know, if you do this, we can't protect you. There's something um, we can do, and so this analysis sort of really stoked those those fears. And yeah, and I think like this kind of central metaphor in the piece was really powerful, and we felt just like we had to respond as soon as possible before people like latched onto this. And the, the central metaphor is like it's a van full of. Excited activists, right? Driving off a cliff. Um, and that's the, the central metaphor of the piece, right? He's like, it's, um, and he uses this driving off the cliff metaphor to think through what he calls like the physics of the strike. Sort of a juicy thing people latched onto, but also extremely, you know, fear mongering and just like disheartening, right? Especially someone who's <laughs> in union organizing who just seems to kind of want to crush the spirit of, of what's happening. And Shannon and I have been talking about this metaphor quite a bit, and that it actually reveals a lot about the way Curtis Rumrill views union organizing and, and the way that our union sort of leadership understands their role, right? And it's, it's that uh, leadership drives this van, right? And workers are just along for the ride. Um, and Shannon and I really took issue with this understanding of, of union organizing. And I think that's really where our critique is coming
0: from. Well, and you both write that the moral of Rummel's uh, criticism is that workers can't organize themselves and that we ought to leave it up to the technocratic leadership who surely knows best. Do you want to speak a little bit more to that? Because that's what it sounds like your understanding of that metaphor reveals about his argument.
2: Yeah, I was going to say a bit more context about sort of like how the uh, arguments of his piece fit into this sort of the landscape of union politics. So I guess it sort of goes back to the earlier point. But I mean, I think it sort of connects to the current question as well. So, I mean, basically, right, like his assumptions about how organizing works or doesn't work, according to him, the workers are not supposed to self-organize and they're basically directed by the quote unquote organizers, right? They was supposed to be a sort of separation between who the organizers are and who the workers are, and sort of it's the organizers who quote-unquote take the workers out on the strike, right? It's, it's sort of, you know, workers don't do that ourselves. Um, but I think that view it's, it's not just like one single random person spouting that view. Uh, I think it's particularly sort of politically significant because this union that, the union that legally represents the teaching assistants and the academic grad workers across the nine UC campuses, the UAW 2865, that's the largest uh, grad union in the whole country. And the statewide leadership of that union since 2018 are controlled by the caucus, who espouses pretty much the exact same view about how workers' power is built or not built, and what the role of Iranian fire workers are and I think they are uh, this the group of people caucus who controls uh, the UAW 2865 at the statewide level the, the, they used to call themselves OSWP and now they've recently renamed themselves to UFA but at the time they were still OSWP and the OSWP politics exactly the same as what Boomer says and for pretty much the same reasons uh, the OSWP has been hostile from the uh, wildcat strike from the very beginning, though sort of, the position has changed over time, which we can talk more. And so I think that, you know, we don't have any so, uh, exact proof of what rumor- the relationship between rumor and OSWP is, but obviously is echoing the dominant political line held by a bunch of these conservative union leaders. His argument has been supported by these people, so I think that's the particular political significance uh, that we face.
0: Yeah, I want to give you all some time and space to really address the rebuttals to the critique about, you know, that you break it down as two primary claims that wildcat strikes are risky and that they can't win. But before getting into that, I kind of want to hear your thoughts about something I've been ruminating about for a long time. Because it sounds probably true that rum real. Like you wouldn't necessarily say that there's like a left wing critique here coming on, but he takes a lot of time professing his left wing credentials before leveraging the critique. And it strikes me as a strange phenomenon that I think does happen in left wing circles a lot, where anytime social movements blast off, particularly kind of insurrectionary moments happen, the first punches that we receive on the left are from so called fellow leftists. I don't know if you all agree with that, but that's my experience coming out of like Occupy Wall Street. It was like we just fucking tore each other apart first and then the media latched on and everybody else. But I don't know. This is something I've been ruminating about for a long time. Like, why does the left throw the first punch?
1: It's unfortunate that this is a trend that that doesn't go away. Right. Um, it just gets reproduced in every social movement. And in the case of Rum Rail and this article, it's just like. You know, he, he, it's obvious why he says all those things, because he's got a conservative um, argument, <laughs> right? Um, and so it's a way of, of, like, saving face or just saying, like, actually, this is really the most leftiest, most informed, most radical um, position. And so I'm just going to make clear my own positionality first before I launch into what actually turns out to be quite conservative. I wish that I had a good answer for why fellow leftists throw the first punches. It's really unfortunate. And I, and especially in this case too, right? Because this was a critical moment where, you know, 82 of our fellow coworkers had been fired and it was a time where we needed to build solidarity. Right. And if, if one thing, I think the left can do um, well is build solidarity and answer the call to action um when that's necessary. So yeah, for me it doesn't really compute in this case. I yeah, like I said, I wish I had a really good answer for this, but I think it's it's unfortunate that the the what this kind of critique does is like sow a lot of confusion and discord when we really could could use just leadership who wants to build the movement, right? Instead of tearing it to shreds even before it it can really get off the ground
2: seems to me it betrays insecurity right if you're actually organizing a wildcat strike on the ground you don't have to tell people a dozen times how much of a leftist you are right <laughs> and sure he knows that people reading it uh, would not think he's a leftist so you know you have to say it again and again but just as you say it i'm a leftist however many times it doesn't make you one
0: I think that's fair. And I should say, too, you know, I apologize. I don't expect you to come up with the psychoanalytic answers to explaining why the left eats itself alive. It's just something I keep thinking about. Yeah, for sure. But how about we get into your responses? So, as you say in the article, the two key things that need to be addressed are one, that wildcat strikes are risky, and that two, wildcat strikes can't win. So, if you want to take those one at a time, maybe we start with the risky one first, which kind of sounds like you had the quickest response to.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can I can take that one. And it is it is a quick response. I mean, and, and we try to address it in the article. I mean, we do address it very directly um, when we say it's an insult to the <laughs> intelligence of the workers who have decided that it's worth taking this risk by going on strike to say, oh, don't you know you could get fired for this action? Like, obviously, everyone knows that. And the reason why... So many more workers decided that they were ready to go on strike It's like the kind of punishment, right, that their co-workers, their colleagues, their fellow workers receive in that firing. So, yeah, of course, everyone knows this. Um, we know everyone who voted to go on strike knew that it was not a protected strike and they were willing to take that risk. Right. They're willing to take that risk because of solidarity, but also because we need a cola. <laughs> we can't afford to live here um, and work here um, for 8, 9, 10 years of our lives, however long it takes us to finish our graduate programs, right? And we need immediate relief. There was enough urgency that people felt like it was really, it was worth it. And this was the moment to do it. I don't know, Shan, do you want to take the why Wildcats can't win argument?
2: I mean, we can point to the examples of Wildcat strikes that won, like, you know, obviously the West Virginia teacher strike and sort of other wildcat, teachers' wildcat strikes inspired by West Virginia, I mean, that's sort of the most fresh on our memory. Then we can also talk about how historically, of course, most strikes have been wildcat strikes, right? It's only in some recent decades that with this legal recognition of unions uh, after the New Deal, that sort of we have the new category of protected strikes. Uh, but it's not like people, you know, started striking once it's legally recognized. In fact, it's the other way, right? You generally how it goes is that you strike first and then win things, including sort of legal recognition possibly. I mean, that was the case sort of in the US nationwide, if you look at the legal framework uh, the Wagner Act came about, as well as sort of individual union recognition, right? So you often you know have a strike and then have the union recognized. So like I mean, this idea that sort of the legal recognition, institutional recognition comes first before the exercise of workers' power or sort of even building of organization, I mean, that's just historically not true, right? And like, I think the, you know, it's always the case that the source of uh, power as workers is fundamentally rooted in a capacity to, uh, to disrupt uh, production and reproduction a capacity to disrupt uh, what the boss needs from us, and um, so like whether it is worth get or not, and then somehow idea that a strike would be never win uh, without uh, legal recognition—I think it's an absurd argument.
0: It reminds me of a piece that I really enjoyed that was penned by Maximilian Alvarez in the Baffler. He described this kind of political assessment as like uh, what he called the politics of staying put. And he was talking specifically about criticisms leveraged against like Antifa and anti-fascist organizing in the immediate wake of Donald Trump getting elected president. But I think a parallel is kind of like where people like Rumrill seem to be coming from. It's this, this really like cautious argument about methodological, planned, sustained, slow building of a base. And then once you have the capacity and the material circumstances are ready and perfect, then you strike. It just reminds me of that. And I feel like the quote that you all chose to start off the article, the one by Rosa Luxemburg, seems really appropriate. I want to hear a little bit more about why you chose that. But the quote you selected from Luxemburg is, historically, the errors committed by a truly revolutionary movement are infinitely more fruitful and valuable than the infallibility of the very best central committee. So why did you choose that to start off your essay?
1: It's funny, Shannon and I are in this reading group and we just finished reading The Mass Strike, right? Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, Luxembourg is our, um, our like, the saint of the struggle, I-, I think. With that quote, is just to say, like, as Luxembourg does, that there's never going to be perf- a perfect strike. There's never going to be these kind of ideal conditions, right, to go on strike. Um, that a union could manufacture. She talks about how the mass strike is not an artificial product, right? It's not something that you can sort of plan perfectly, assess, um, you know, using structure tests to assess workers' readiness, involvement. There's never going to be like a perfect time where where all the stars align. You have to strike when the iron is hot and when workers are already organizing themselves and already. Ready to go, right? And then um, you learn so much in the process. I've talked to so many grads who have been organizing with who have said stuff like, I feel like I'm doing a second PhD, <laughs> right? Because I'm learning so much about political struggle. And I think one of the main things we're trying to contest in Rumroll's article is this idea, yeah, that you were just saying that you have to sort of plan everything. So perfectly um, before you can you can take any action. And actually, I think it's the opposite. You have to take action to learn how to engage in struggle. And that's the only way that actually you can organize. Um, you have to act first. As an organizer, you can't just say, like, okay, now we're all going to go on strike. Like, that's not how it works either, right? Um, you have to sort of know what conditions look like on the ground and go from there and and be able to yeah, have an accurate assessment of where, where folks are at. But at the same time, like, the way that RumRill and company and seem to think about it is, like, it becomes this vicious circle, right? Where you're, you're just never going to be ready <laughs> to go on strike.
2: I think it just sort of illustrates the basic point that this source of workers' power is our capacity to self-organize, right? So rather than being directed by uh, someone else to do this or that. Uh, so like i think you know to gain a uh, capacity to self-organize that's how we win over time you know as she says it's never going to be you know we can never expect quote-unquote perfect process uh, all the way with, without any mistake If the orientation is towards that i think you'd not be able to build an actual sort of capacity to self-organize because you're always dependent on the so-called outside experts in order to avoid both mistakes uh, but then that actually does not build uh, we are proud
1: to win. In our case, the, the outside experts our union leadership is actually never or- organized for a strike. How would they know at all what, what, what um, it looks like when leadership, I mean, when um, the rank and file is ready?
0: I think what you're saying about self-organizing is really interesting because one of my insights that's been exposed to me in doing labor organizing is what I perceive to be a very strong fear of democracy from a lot of people. And I wouldn't say that that's not even necessarily a conservative position. It's definitely a conservative position, but I see it amongst liberals and I see it even amongst like lefties, radicals, self-described. There, they, it never gets expressed that way. But every time I've seen some kind of thing that wasn't given permission in the first place to happen, or some kind of expansion of a structure that gives rank and file members reasonably just as much democratic voice as anybody else, including elected leadership, there's a super strong reaction against that. It's just a tendency that emerges over and over. And I wonder what you all think about this general, Like, if you agree, first off, that there's a general fear of real democracy in the labor movement. And by that, I mean, fear of workers having democratic agency.
2: It's always been the case in an established labor movement for many decades, and not just in this country, but everywhere, right? So when you have, a, you know, uh, massive union institution, organized union institution, and uh, its union bureaucracy, and because I think they, it is a material basis for such, you know, conservative attitudes. For some of them, or in some situations, I think it's more to do with the, you know, their own sort of livelihood is tied with uh, the union having a secure and stable source of income. And then so unlike anything risky, anything that could sort of fundamentally challenge this status quo, uh, could jeopardize sort of, their own you know, reproduction as union bureaucrats, right? So that's one common reason in which it happens and so in the material basis. And then there's like an ideological basis too, of course, we live in a capitalist society with its with its accompanying uh, ideological hegemony, right? So like, yeah, of course, there's always going to be a moderate, I'm going to call it sort of tendency within the unions uh, that to sort of you know seek more conciliation with the employers. You know, that itself is is nothing new about that. It's been the case since the beginning of capitalist society, I think. But then the fight against it from the rank and fair workers, I mean that have also always existed.
0: One thing I wanna hear maybe tell your thoughts on is you point out in your rebuttal to Rumrill that he kind of creates like a polemical trick. And saying that his analysis is scientific, and sober and rational, and the wildcat strikers are just utopian. Personally, I think utopia gets a really bad rap. I totally am into utopian ideas, but nevertheless, it's a device, right? It's a way of like delegitimizing a different position and claiming that your position has the empirical evidence behind it. Can you speak a little bit more to that, or do you want to elaborate any more on like what's actually happening on the ground, but also like how rum real kind of maybe disingenuously represents the situation?
1: I mean, there's two modes that he, rhetorical modes that he takes up in this article. One of them is what you just pointed to, this claim to science, that the strike has a kind of physics. um, And if you misunderstand those rules, then you're doomed from the beginning. It's a totally a rhetorical trick. I mean, there are no rules in society that work like the rules of science. He's just inventing things at that point, if that's his claim, you know, It does strike a chord, I think, with people who do want a certain amount of certainty in the face of risk. I, I totally understand why why he he does why he does that. And I think that it gets really interestingly linked with this other rhetorical device, um, which is like this taking of the moral, higher ground. Right. Um, he talks about this kind of inner battle that he was waging about whether or not the strike was right um, and, and whether or not he should get involved. And ultimately, he kind of took the moral higher ground, took the rational path. Right. Because according to his calculations, there was no possible good result. And in the end, workers were, were going to be we're going to martyr themselves or leadership was trying to martyr workers or something like that. I mean, they're just like both kind of disingenuous, and nasty ways, <laughs> but also very persuasive. So I, I mean, I think I, I get it. I get why he used those. Shannon and I really took issue, especially with the, the scientific sort of arguments, because I mean, yeah, like I said before, that's just not how things work, you can't calculate everything you can't predict. The outcome in advance. Um, you have to sort of experiment and, and see what's possible for for workers, right? And in the process, um, the movement has grown organically, exponentially, um, and workers' expectations have been raised, which is exactly the opposite of what w- Rumrill predicted. His expectations have been raised not only about in terms of what kinds of actions they can take, right? Now, it's completely normal <laughs> to engage in a wildcat strike, which is incredible, right? But also workers' expectations have been raised in terms of demands, right? Um, it's suddenly, and you're, you just said, you know, Utopia gets a bad rap, but I mean, I think in some ways our, our demands are, um, you know, they're reasonable on the one hand because we want to be out of rent burden, right? And, and the COLA amount that we've asked for would take us out of rent burden. Um, but also we're we're asking for our for a hundred percent raise right like that is a kind of utopian demand and and now that demand is seems reasonable to people and people are saying you know why not we should we should ask for that that's actually what we deserve that's actually what it costs to live here And so I'm very bothered <laughs> um, by this claim to sober rational scientific understanding when really we've been seeing just, how this movement has ignited just a whole new understanding of like what's possible for graduate student workers.
0: Shannon, can you help us learn a little bit of the kind of on the ground history? Because it sounds like there's a lot there that really disproves Rumrill's claims and the claims to having the empirical evidence on his side.
2: We have organized this sort of unprecedented in many years, this World strike, many UC campuses that just, you know, of a scale that was, you know, not that had not even been imaginable even a few months previously on multiple UC campuses. The other side, his side, what have they organized? And nothing, nothing that ever approaches that scale of sort of demobilizations that we have been able to do, right? This is what the workers responded to. This is what the you know hundreds of workers across so many uc campuses have come to the general assemblies have put in country hours to organize for this movement because they're inspired by a by movement their goal and uh, they believe in it the other side rumors side has not been able to inspire that at all so i mean i think i think that's a strong enough proof that sort of you know, the science is on our side i mean not that i mean you know we don't right, right, our point is that of course you know, the, the, quote, like, the methods of natural science so the certainties of natural science cannot be, you know, applied in human societies. Of course, you know, that, that's not the case. But if you actually look at uh, sort of, you know, from a social scientific point of view, I think that the, our method of starting with, uh, working, starting with uh, direct action by workers is what inspires mass movements rather than sort of, you know, these whatever first steps that these people do to collect uh, this ballot or these signatures or whatever. That sort of workers don't tend to find as directly connected to their own livelihood as the kind of direct struggles that we have been organizing.
0: I'm interested to hear a little bit more about some of the mechanisms for decision making, too, because what I gleaned from your article is that general assemblies are one form of democratic decision-making that's being employed by the striking workers. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like and if there's any other ways that folks have on the ground been making these kinds of decisions about how to self-organize and how to continue the strike?
1: Yeah, I can say more about that. So on the Berkeley campus, we adopted this departmental organizing plan. So we asked workers to... Self-organized, basically. I mean, many departments were already organizing around other workplace issues, right? So these are um, networks that still exist, that already exist. And we chose, we also chose departments because those are already like the organic communities in which grad workers participate in life in the university. So people already know each other, they trust each other, they have each other's backs. And also, you know, if a whole department goes on strike, it's it's way less likely that you know he's just gonna get rid of every grad student in one department right so there's a certain level of, of protection as well yeah and, and these are just like yeah organic units um, of decision making also got representatives from these departments to participate in different committees that were organizing the strike and then these committees help plan the general assemblies right so decision making is happening on all these different different levels
2: yeah, I was just going to add a bit more on this uh, the statewide, and yeah, I mean, I thought we could use what uh, Tara said for Berkeley, this you're making me sort of the statewide level. I think that's very what's very important uh, to understand is that how each campus is autonomous, even though, like, we have, you know, we very closely communicate and collaborate and still go together with each other, like, the, each campus is autonomous. Um, so, like, you know, because it started in Santa Cruz, right? So the Santa Cruz started in America's strike, then they have their own GAs. And then, so they called upon all other the campuses to, you know, start self-organizing, uh, which, you know, all campuses, workers, comrades on all campuses did. And then, you know, each of us have the GAs and sort of, yeah, like, it's departmental structures uh, like I talked about. And then, because, you know, since Santa Cruz, always been sort of ahead in terms of where they are the they get strike. They would often appear for specific support, such as like a seekout strike that we did in January, the regents meeting. And then when Santa Cruz uh, was threatened with uh, the student conduct discipline, and they went on, you know, for indefinite uh, teaching strike. And then uh, hashtag spread the strike, right? So they, they, you know, began to really sort of, you know, urgently call on all other campuses to uh, also start Wildcat to strengthen the movement and people answered their call, right? Uh, but that's uh, that sort of, you know, really based on some genuine solidarity rather than sort of even telling other people what to do. And like the other method utilized by UAW leadership, the OSPP leadership, there is the statewide executive board, that by fiat, terrorist campuses, what to do, what not to do. It's more like what not to do is more common, right? <laughs> and so, like, uh, I think that's the difference. It's the sort of this autonomous movement, uh, the GAs collaborating with each other. I think that's really the sort of source of strength statewide rather than sort of bureaucratic fiat, which anyone had ever tried to implement, it would just, you know, not work.
0: Is that the case that any elected leadership or Paid staff has been helping and supporting the strike in any way? Or is it a pretty separate process?
2: They have been very active in trying to prevent the wildcat strikes from happening and spreading, right? So, like at places like Berkeley and LA, where the OSWP has a pretty strong uh, ground presence, and in departments where OSWP is very strong, I mean, you know, we have had much harder time in spreading the wildcat strike because. They would always you know, mobilize their networks and their resources to make sure people don't go and work at strike. Right. Also, I, I note that sort of one of the things that the OSBP did after they seized power is to take resources away from campus units. So, uh, like if we look at campus labor unions at uh, Santa Cruz and Santa Barbara, where our movement has been strongest, uh, core folks are in the union leadership. But then, like, it's the sort of how the statewide union uh, functions since the OSWP took over. There's no money that goes to any uh, campus-level organizing. And also, so the campus unit chairs uh, of campus unions used to get paid, uh, but their pay was taken out, and, you know, that's all channeled into uh, the statewide staff that follows the wheel of the leadership. So, like, basically, yes, like, on some campuses, we have power, in the campus union but they do not have much resources.
1: It's been really interesting to watch as the strike spread and grew was just how union leadership responded in all these different ways because they I mean they've been against it from from day 1 because it doesn't fit into their grand organizing plan to go on strike, I, I guess, in 2022. Who knows if that's if that's um, actually the real intention or not. But um, I mean, at first they tried to ignore it. And I think they just thought it would collapse and go away. And then when it started to, to spread to other campuses, there was a push to really co-opt the movement. And they like launched this website that said Cola for All. And it was just like, they totally put their, their foot in their mouth because Cola for All was already this autonomous movement, mostly folks of color at Santa Cruz, uh, who had a different set of demands, and they were working in coalition with with COLA. Um, So they sort of had no idea what was really going on in the ground, and that was clear. And when they got a lot of pushback for that, and the ULP charges had been filed, because there's there's ULP charges on both sides now, they, they were forced to promise that they would call for a ULP strike vote in early April, right? And now they've done everything they they can to undermine that. So it doesn't happen. But I mean, I think that's really the power of rank and file organizing, right? As even if you have union leadership, who's totally intransigent, not interested in organizing for a mass movement, this actually can force their hand. That's been a a win for us in a way. And I, there's much more to come. We, now we know Now we know when we apply pressure that they have to do what, what workers want and what workers need. Yeah,
2: I mean, in the end, what they're afraid of is losing office, right? Losing power in the union. So like, you know, once the cut movement, uh, the current movement got strong enough, and then, you know, they have to at least sort of appear to, you know, pretend uh, like they're doing something. Otherwise, you know, they were just gonna lose everything or the resources and power that they had. So, I mean, they have to sort of do this URP thing to appear like they're doing something.
0: I want to ask a question that I will admit already is pretty self-interested, but I still want to ask it. I've been thinking a lot about like, how do you help organize insurgencies, like worker insurgencies? What is, and wildcat strikes are clearly an example of worker insurgencies and autonomous organizing self-activation. And there's a role, I think, that paid staff, unionizers could have that often they don't take, there's a lot of caution, I think, amongst labor organizers, like people in the paid position. And I understand some of that because we are totally beholden to this like, legal framework and state powers, and there's a lot of risk and gambles that you take with that. But I'm just kind of curious, I keep rooming out on this question, what would, like, how do you help organize uh, insurgency? And maybe the question for you all would be, what would you have liked to have seen some of the union staff Have done, if you could like rewrite the history, how could they have acted in solidarity more so with helping the worker insurgency as opposed to trying to tamp it down and control it?
1: Your question just really made me think how this particular struggle started. And I think there's like a longer history. Um, I mean, there's a very long history, and then there's like the more shorter ish term history, which is like going back to 2018 when the leadership in power pushed through this really crappy contract. And in that case, they used paid staff (laughs) to do the dirty work, right? So once that that small group of leaders had decided that it was time to vote for ratification, they actually asked paid staff to um, contact workers and convince them to vote um, yes on ratification, right? That's definitely what paid staff should not be asked to do, right? Um, That's the opposite, undermining workers, right? That moment just made totally clear to me. Okay, like this is definitely not the role of paid staff. So that's the that's the worst possible thing that could happen. And I, I guess I, I wish, I wish I had good examples for what paid staff could do. I feel like in the case of our union, I haven't seen too much of that. Maybe Shannon, maybe you could say more. Right.
2: So, like, I mean, I guess with the caveat that sort of, I think there is a very, you know, diverse view on this question, like within the color movement. So like, this is just, you know what I'm saying now, it's just my own view and like, you know, I'm not sort of uh, that of the movement by any means. I mean, personally, like I, I'm not sort of categorically opposed to paid union staff, right? Like, because I think, you know, more organizing capacity would be helpful, right? The union leadership, we were committed to grassroots organizing. And of course, I think then with the, the uh, staff with the similar political commitment, you know, I, I don't think the fact that sort of somebody's paid for the organizing job itself is sort of undermined. Uh, I think the problem with this union in particular is the, is that the wrong people are in power, right? And of course, the staff, I mean, the, the employees, so, you know, they, they had the the executive board, they're the boss, right? So of course the boss would tell the staff what to do. When you have a conservative leadership that stifles grassroots organizing, then I think having paid staff to just accelerate that because that resource help their objective and not ours. But if they were serving our objective, then why not?
0: I wanted to hear your thoughts about Another kind of question about just organi- labor organizing in general in the United States and how beholden we are to the kind of collective bargaining paradigm. So, there's definitely some like, you know, labor thinkers who believe, I'm thinking in particular like Stanley Aronowitz, that ever surrendering to the collective bargaining paradigm in the first place was like the first defeat of, you know, the worker power in this country. I don't know how much I agree with that these days after working with grad workers who where a contract really does help kind of maintain some stability of a workforce that is by design temporary, right? For those kinds of continual reset buttons that you get with new workers every year. But at the same time, I think there is something to explore and how much we're limited by collective bargaining as like the exclusive strategy and the biggest priority that so many labor unions in this country kind of take on i don't know you all are kind of going in the exact direction that challenges and exposes those limitations so i feel like you might have a lot to kind of say and reveal about how the contract really can't save us or what role should the contract really have in terms of worker organizing
2: i guess personally again like also you know probably there are sort of people who. You are any thoughts in the movement that I respect as well, but I mean, personally, I don't think, right? You know, I'm not of the view that unions should never ever sign a contract, which I understand was the early IWW view, right? There are many times when the level of militancy is not particularly high, and, you know, obviously the legal protection would sort of help workers' you know, material well being. Uh, even if for the short term, uh, and do help, you know, maintain, uh, labor movement institutions. I mean, the, I don't think these are necessarily always bad for our power, but I think, you know, there is like, as we have been talking about, does generate sort of bureaucratizing tendencies always that I think we always, you know, have to combat But uh, because legal protection if we can get it, it can help. And so we have at least uh, some comrades in the movement have been very sort of focusing on fighting for a URP strike. Uh, the unfair labor practice strike, which is sort of, you know, provide the protection against firing workers. And yeah, like I, I think they're right when they say that sort of it's the URP strike is not counterposed to the wildcat strike, I think it goes together, right? We start with the wildcat and then we we fight for a demand and we also fight for more legal protection. I I think that makes sense.
0: I'd like to move us to something of a close here. And I was hoping in closing, maybe we can get for our listeners an update of where things stand currently with the wildcat strike, particularly considering the exigencies that we could not have ever predicted in the current pandemic. So what's happening now, and are there any other things that you want to share in conclusion?
1: It's definitely more difficult, as one might imagine, to organize during a global pandemic. I'm on many different fronts, right? Because we're fighting not only completely altered working circumstances and living conditions, but also you know, the pandemic made it more difficult for us to respond to certain like, strike-breaking tactics that the university and, and different departments have undertaken. So, I mean, there's definitely been a slowdown, right? And I think that that's normal (laughs) Um, under these circumstances, you know, and and while that's happened, it's been interesting to see what parts of the movement has taken off as like the strength of the actual wildcat has ebbed, as I said before. There's been a lot of focus on like two really interesting ways of organizing, um, and one is I mean, mutual aid, so mutual aid has really become a key way that folks are supporting each other through this moment. Just at the Berkeley campus, COLA organizers have been able to give out like, I think it's like over $30,000 <laughs> worth of mutual aid, right? And, and other kinds of non-monetary help. And then also Strike University, which has just been this really amazing, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's this really incredible Um initiative that Cola folks have put together just for political education, free school basically which has been which has been really amazing So I think we're learning how and what we can do in like an online environment. yeah so I, I guess I'll say that and then I'll also say that I think because we've we, okay we haven't won a COLA yet obviously um, unfortunately we have not one reinstatement yet for the fired workers we still want those things I think we're still willing to fight. And the way I see it is that, you know, these actions come in, in waves. It's not like a linear fight by any means. And that sort of round one is coming to a close and that we're getting geared up for what round two is going to be like. And I think we've learned so much and built so much solidarity and collective power that, that I think we're going to be able to come back in the fall and really kick some butt.
2: (laughs) the key point is that we now have a movement, you know, which we did not have. So, like, as Tara said, I mean, because we have not run a call yet, but, you know, I don't think it's a defeat, as some people may like to call it. I think it's an, you know, inconclusive ending for now. But the difference being that we have a movement that we do not have. And also, just like the way in which I think, you know, people have a real lived experience of doing about get strike, and that right gets strike as a tactic, right, as a repertoire of tactic, and uh, sort of become normalized and just become part of the things we could do. I think that was completely unimaginable in November 2019. We have been in touch with Santa Cruz comrades, uh, which uh, have started all this because of this sort of, you know, been working with them since 2018 on uh, this sort of union, right, appear against the contract, and so the union dissident things, Right. Right, like the, I don't think they were expecting, you know, we sort the of very politically committed anti-capitalists who believe in the most, you know, militant tactics as possible. I don't think even they were imagining the, the wildcat strike would be something that we could do right here, right now, right? Uh, but now, like, that's, you know, hundreds of workers, you know, thousands of workers across the state have that in their consciousness. And so I think that really sort of has put us in a you know just qualitatively improved position to begin a fight again well i, I guess for for Berkeley since we already um out of the academic year so for us it'd be beginning to fight again in the in august and because for other campuses and yes, they're still you know the fight since ever they, uh, they, they have determined through june but in any case i think that too you know it, it has set up a foundation to keep our struggle in ways that uh, an incredible achievement of the movement uh, regardless of what's happening with the finer aim itself for now
0: on an experience i'll share with you all as we close here is you know i have seen as well in oregon lots of grad workers inspired by the militancy and the kind of expanded imagination around what is possible and what we can win and maybe what we can accomplish, even, even amidst a pandemic. So thank you for that. Thank you both for taking the time to be on Labor Wave and hope you win round two.
2: Yeah, I, thank you. I'll just end by uh, with a shout out to Andrea, who said that the Mayday call that uh, revolution will be fun, feminist and fraud. I agree with that. I think it takes us back to, um, as Luxembourg said. So I think it's great to see that it's spreading to Oregon and everywhere.
0: I know Andrea's going to love that you gave her that shout out. (laughs) No.